Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com and check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Speaking of the blog, I just came out with an article on Friday um, having to do with the regulated principle worship, similar to what we'll be discussing today. So go and check it out, theparticularbaptist.net. Um, so with that, let's dive right into our topic. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about what constitutes corporate worship and along or in, in consistency with as best as we can with the regulative principle of worship. So I'll hand it over to Sean to kick us off in our topic today. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm just going to read three paragraphs from the, uh, the confession that will hopefully lay out some of the categories for us before we start diving into the actual biblical data. Um, so this is, uh, all these are going to be from uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 22. And um, the first paragraph is, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination of and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So here we just have laid out the uh, the regulative principle of worship, that God is the one that gets to decide how he is to be worshipped. Um did you have any comments on that before I move on to the next uh, paragraph there, Dan? Nope. All right. Um, then uh, jumping to paragraph six, neither prayer nor any other part of re religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself. So more solemnly in public assemblies, which are uh, not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calls thereunto. And then um, paragraph eight, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words and thoughts, about their worldly employment and uh, recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So here, um, these two paragraphs are uh, laying out that there's a, there's a distinction, right? Um, the last paragraph says that there's public and private worship. Uh, so we really want to get into uh, the details there and what, what distinguishes these two things. Um, what is what is corporate worship? Uh, what are the elements of that as opposed to uh, what we could say uh, private worship is? So that'll be what we discuss today. Yeah, and uh, tagging along to Sean's point there, we do believe that the regulative principle applies to all of worship. It's not just uh, corporate worship or public worship or public assemblies, as the confession says here. It applies to all of worship, all that we do with regards to um, pious acts towards God needs to be regulated by his word. Um, and we have plenty of biblical precedent for this. I think probably the most famous uh, passage of scripture is Leviticus chapter 10, 
uh, where we see the example of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who were serving in the temple, and they decided to offer unauthorized um, fire before the Lord or that which was not commanded. God had prescribed a certain way that whatever they were doing, we don't know exactly the act that they were doing. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. But they were doing something in terms of uh, the public worship of God that was incorrect, that was not in accordance with what God had prescribed, um, and they paid the ultimate price for it. Um, so we can see very clearly here that God is concerned with how he is worshipped, and that we are to approach God um, with that same uh, type of attitude. Um, and we know that this is not just simply an Old Testament reference, right? This is something that applies very much to the New Testament church, obviously in a different way because of the um, Old Covenant ceremonial laws being fulfilled in Christ and no longer um, applicable to us. But um, the principle of regulating worship still applies. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, 28 through 29 is very clear on this. We're to approach God with reverence for God is a consuming fire, right? Um, and that quote, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, comes from Deuteronomy 4.24, which says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Um, and that specific verse comes from the context of a a fairly lengthy passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4 on regulating how God is to be worshipped as it relates to images. All right, and I'm going to read just a little bit from this section to give us a, a flavor of what's being talked about here. So verse 15 of Deuteronomy 4, it says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. So God is basically reiterating the second commandment that he laid out in the Decalogue, that you're not to make an image, you're not to worship those images, um, because... You know, you're going to become focused on those things, and it's going to take you away from God. It's going to corrupt you. So don't do that. Don't create this worship method, right? So we see very clearly he's regulating worship. And at the very end of this section, uh, starting in verse 22, it says, For I must uh, die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So the writer of Hebrews is taking this, um, really this covenant curse that's found in the old covenant and applying it uh, within the context of the new covenant with God's covenant people in the sense that God is not going to take lightly us coming before him uh, flippantly or in a way that he is forbidden. That's the language that is being used here that um, I believe this is Moses speaking, giving instructions of the people. Um, but uh, it's being said that the Lord your God has forbidden you. So he's given strict commands on what they're to do, and it's forbidding them from doing something. So to act outside of what God has commanded in worship is to violate that principle, what we would call and the Reformed would call the regulative principle of worship, that God is to reg that we are to make sure our worship is consistent with how God has commanded or given example in his word. That's generally um, how it's understood.
So this is really the driving point behind what we're talking about today and what constitutes corporate worship. Um, and I think it's important to point out, too, that um, not all Reformed believers are going to come on the same conclusions on these things, right? Um, I think all Reformed uh, Christians do believe in the regular principle of worship. They have a strong desire to worship God as he has commanded, but not everybody comes to the same conclusions. There's going to be people that have different views on the Lord's Supper. There's going to be people that have different views on um, it, music and worship. Um, some are exclusive psalmody, some are not. It, it just, the list goes on and on. Um, and I think we can see this historically, too, with the particular Baptists. Um, they were all over the map on this issue as well. Um, they had a very strong uh, resistance to the Anglican Church, the established church, um, as it relates to infant baptism, and seeing that as a violation of the regulative principle. Um, but they didn't all fall in the same areas on everything either. Um, so it's that's important to point out as well. Um, but there is this distinction in our confession between um, private and public worship. Uh, do you have anything you want to add, Sean? Yeah, um, I wanted to perhaps give a, a historical example, although it's a, an example that's still relevant today, of um, inappropriate worship in regards to private worship. Uh, mm. Because I know sometimes, and for me, it took a little bit of thinking about where exactly the line or how the regulative principle would apply to private worship, because you read the scriptures and it's obvious that it's at least applied differently. Um, but yep. one good example is pilgrimages, right? Um, with with uh, Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, you have the Reformers and uh, the Lutherans reacting against all these unbiblical practices that had come into the church, one of them being pilgrimages. And mm. there's multiple levels of issues with pilgrimages. It's not merely that um, it's uh, the church was getting people to do things that weren't commanded, because you also have issues of idolatry with, you know, making a pilgrimage to ex-saints bones and uh, whatnot. Right. And um, so there's, there's, and the whole tied up with penance. So it's not just merely that, but that is at least a component of it. And uh, I want to give a quote from Luther here, which I find interesting because Lutherans don't, didn't actually end up affirming the regulative principle. They would uh, be a more normative principle of worship. But uh, I think Luther here instinctively understood what the issue was. Um, and this is him in uh, 1520. All pilgrimages should be done away with, for there is no good in them, no commandment, but countless causes of sin and contempt of God's commandments. These pilgrimages are treason for there being so many beggars who commit numerous uh, villainies. So he said, there's, there's no commandment for this. And that's, that's the issue. Um, it's, it's private worship. It's not corporate worship. It's individuals making these pilgrimages. So it falls outside of corporate worship, but uh, Luther was recognizing there's, there's, there's no commandment for this. Why is the church um, enforcing that believers should be doing these things? Um, that's not to say that anybody who's gone to the Holy land for their own spiritual benefit is in sin or anything. I'm not saying that. But um, if the church were to, the, the church, in quotes, were to um, say, well, you have to do this pilgrimage, we as Reformed believers would immediately recognize that's wrong. You're trying to enforce an aspect of worship on us that's not commanded by Scripture. It's not commanded by God, and therefore we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do it that way. So I think that's a, that's a helpful example of what we're 
of why we would say um, the regular principle applies even outside of uh, corporate worship. Yeah, that's interesting about Luther, because that sounds very much like a regulative principle. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the normative principle came from Melanchthon um, later on, because I know him and Melanchthon and Luther didn't see eye to eye on everything. And Melanchthon really carried the Lutheran flag Mm -hmm. post Luther, you know, helping with the Augsburg Confession and, and all of that. So I wonder if that's where it came from. Well, I know Luther is a little bit more radical um earlier on and then sort of becomes more conservative in the Mm. things that he uh he's willing to keep and as i said the quotes from 1520 so he might have been more that's very early yeah it's very early more willing to recognize like oh this is this is how i should think about it and then later um just like with infant baptism or um some of the other things not all of which was was bad necessarily for one thing he was open to the zwickau prophets and then later after they turned to be false he uh, I think he he reacted and, and realized that, you know, okay, well, this is clearly isn't right. So I'm not necessarily disagreeing with everything, but um, in some regards, yeah, it does seem like he was more open to what would be considered radical views that I would agree with. Um, and then later became a little bit more conservative in, um, uh, in his theology. So that, that might be part of the issue. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. It is interesting though, because if, he did steer away from that regulative principle. He really has no grounds to uh, against Rome for why they would, you know, go and pay homage to these relics or make these pilgrimages. Because if you have the normative principle, if it doesn't forbid it, then you can do it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it, if he did end up going down that road, it would indicate, you know, an inconsistency in his thought. Um, I imagine he really have no grounds against it. I imagine he'd still want to say, well, this is idolatry because you're going and, you know, venerating these saints bones and stuff like that. But mm. it does lead to the, the question of like, if you were to take a pilgrimage just to the Holy land and you're not necessarily going to a specific like saint or site or whatever um, that had idolatrous practices going on, would he be able to say there was any issue with the church saying you had to do something like that? or at least it being part of the, the theology. You also have the, the concept of penance, which is mixed in there. Um, so you mm-hmm. might be doing it for penance reasons, and he would be able to say that, well, no, penance doesn't accomplish anything in your salvation. Um, so uh, he might also be able to go after it on those grounds. But in terms of would he be able to say, well, just because the church says I should do this doesn't mean it's binding on me. I, I don't know. I would, I would have, yeah. to, I'd have to read a little bit more. Yeah, it is interesting, though, kind of how the those the Anglican and the Lutheran Church kind of developed over time, or the Lutheran Church anyways, um, in terms of its theology. Um, and the Reformers, you know, they post like the you know, the English, especially the English Reformers, really seeing this like, whoa, we need to make sure that God's word is regulating what we're doing here, not just mm-hmm. introducing anything that we feel like should be into the worship of God. And binding people's consciences where God has left them free, too, mm-hmm. which is a major theme. I mean, there's a whole chapter dedicated to that in our confession about, um, you know, the freedom of the conscience, about the conscience. So, yeah, it, it was it was very important not to bind man's conscience where God has left them free, but also not introduce things uh, into worship that shouldn't be there when the scriptures um, do not give us warrant to. It's better to be safe than sorry is essentially the. I think the idea that we find there. 
All right. Well, Sean, you want to take us into this next section here? Um, what was the next section? I didn't realize I had to On, speak. Uh, corporate worship um, in the gathered assembly. Oh, um, uh, sorry. I didn't realize that I had to uh, say anything. Oh, here. no, it's okay. Um, let's see. Um, I actually don't know what I would have wanted to say. So, uh, corporate worship gathered assembly, I guess, um, uh, one of the things that was helpful, uh, in preparing for this is, uh, Waldron's, uh, book, the regulative principle of the church mm-hmm. and, um, how that, um, how he lays out certain categories, not necessarily, I, I agreed with every single point he brought up in the uh, book, but I found it helpful, um, pointing out, um, that the church actually is, um, a model of, uh, the, or it's the anti-type of the temple, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, the temple in the old Testament was regulated and the church actually is a, uh, uh, a, uh, temple too. And, uh, let me call up my, uh, reference for this uh this comes from uh first corinthians chapter three verse uh starting at verse nine for we are all laborers together with god ye are god's husbandry ye are god's building according to the grace of god which is given unto me as a wise master builder i have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon for other foundation uh, can no man lay than that is laid, uh, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work. What sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he have built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so by father. Uh, fire know ye not that ye are the temple of god and that the spirit of god dwelleth in you if any man defile the temple of god him shall god destroy for the temple of god is holy which temple you are um so the church here is being described as something that's built it's god's building and it's described as a temple and just as we see in the old testament that there were special regulations in regards to the temple because the temple was holy um, it wasn't, um, it was, it was holy. It was set apart in that regard. So God put special regulations upon it. We would expect in the new Testament era, uh, to also have special regulations in regards to worship in this temple, um, that for those to be given to us, that is distinct from how we might worship private, privately apart from this, uh, this, this temple construct that is the church. Um, did you have any, did you have anything, uh, on that, Dan? Um, I guess just, you know, what kind of, how do we understand what corporate worship, uh, is in terms of the gathering? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we, we talk about the distinction between private and corporate worship. Um, but I'm wondering if it, it, the line is not always clear, um, to Christians on what that means. Cause, Mm -hmm. um, in that same book that we reference with Waldron, he quotes Mark Driscoll, who talks about uh, all of life being worshipped mm-hmm. to God. Well, we don't, you know, this regulated principle of worship really isn't that important. You know, all of life is worshipped to God. So what does it matter kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I have a, an example of that um, that might be helpful. 
um, that there are certain things that were permitted in, in what we could say private worship, but not in the corporate gathered worship. Uh, for example, David is said to dance before the Lord, and it's, it's, uh, the text implies that it's a good thing. In fact, one of his wives says it's a bad thing, and she ends up being barren because, uh, because yep. she um, didn't recognize that he was, he was doing something good. Um, whereas applying the regulative principle to the, the temple worship, dancing is nowhere ever commanded um, in, the, in the worship of the temple, and it would have been inappropriate to do so. So there we see a, a distinction that there's um, there's something that might be permissible out permissible outside of corporate worship, but is not because corporate worship is regulated in a special way. Um, so yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and and our confession uses the language of. Uh, let me go back to uh, paragraph one here. Um, it says, uh, "But God is to be worshipped." This is paragraph six. Um, sorry, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken. So it, our confession sees there is a greater solemnness and a greater um, focus, I guess you could say, on the worship of God when we're gathering on the Lord's Day than when we're worshiping privately. All of it is worship, but not in the same exact way. Um, and that's where Driscoll goes wrong. He conflates everything and just says, well, it's all worship. Who cares? Um, while we would say, no, all of it has to be regulated, but it's not going to flesh out in the same exact way. Um, and that's an important distinction to make. Not always an easy distinction um, to show, but it's certainly there. We Just like the example that Sean gave with David dancing before the Lord, um, and people thought he was making a spectacle of himself and were rebuked because his wife uh, was rebuked because of it. Um, so it's important that we we make this distinction. Um, and when we're talking about, uh, you know, corporate worship, um, I think, Sean, you put a quote in our notes here from the book about how Wadron talks about mm. what constitutes a gathering, you know, and then it, what constitutes a corporate gathering of worship by Christians. It's not just christians coming together and being in the same place it has to do with coming together for the purpose of corporately worshiping god in the way he has prescribed his people to do um, which would be on the lord's day which would be uh, with certain elements involved in it um, so it's not just people coming together who call themselves christians it's a specific gathering for a specific purpose of worshiping god as he's prescribed in his word um, so that's an, an important distinction to make. And that helps us to not introduce our private worship into corporate worship and introduce uh -huh. corporate worship into private worship, which is something that we, you know, might easily do. Usually, I think it's the other, it's usually that we're bringing in private worship into corporate worship. That's what we typically see in the evangelical world. We tend to bring in our um, entertainment in a way that we shouldn't. We tend to bring in um you know, church becomes more of kind of a motivational um, ceremony, a way to get people riled up about some topic that you're talking about in church rather than those elements that God has prescribed in his word. So those things from the outside tend to creep in. Um, so keeping that distinction helps us to keep everything in its proper place while still recognizing that there are real distinctions there that um, help us to do what God has said in his word. All right. Anything um, else to add, Sean? 
Yeah, I think I will actually read this uh, Waldron quote here. Okay. And in yeah. context, he's talking about Matthew 18 and um, mm -hmm. where two or three are gathered. And he, he makes the specific point, in my name, there I am in the yes. midst of them, saying, what is it that actually constitutes a gathering of the church? So um, this is, this is a quote from his book. Let me illustrate the significance of this phrase. A number of years ago, I worked in a large warehouse with a number of other Christians. The warehouse was owned and operated by Amway Corporation. At lunch, we would eat together. We often opened lunch with a prayer and spent the whole time discussing biblical issues. There were more than two or three of us. That lunch gathering, however, was not a gathering in Christ's name in the meaning of this text. It was a gathering of Christians, true enough, but it was a gathering of Christians in the name of Amway Corporation and because of hunger, not in the name of Christ. We were gathered as Amway employees and not as Christ's official people. We could not by any biblical right claim the promise of Matthew 18:20. The specific limitation of this promise is the assembling of the local church officially in Christ's name because they are a church and in, the, in their character as a church. That condition must be met for the claiming of this promise. So um, in order for something to be corporate worship, um, we, we have to understand that corporate worship happens in the context of the church. Um, it's not enough to say, well, there are Christians here. This, this must constitute corporate worship um, because you, you end up, um, well, it would be, well, regardless, uh, we, we think about it in the way that it's, it's in the church, right? Um, they might be worshiping here um, in a sense, because um, uh, we're to, uh, whether we eat or drink, we're to do all to the glory of God. In some sense, we are always supposed to be worshiping, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's to be regulated as uh, corporate worship, just like, um, like the church's temple would be, would, be, uh, would be regulated. So I think this is a very helpful description showing that just because there are Christians gathered together doesn't mean that all of a sudden this has become corporate worship. Exactly. Yeah. And that can apply to things, you know, if we're talking about a prayer meeting, you know, that we do might do on a Wednesday night or whatever, that would not constitute as corporate worship in the sense of what we would see on the Lord's Day. It's worship, but not in a, you know, these public assemblies of worshiping God uh, on that regular interval every Sunday that we do more solemnly than anywhere else. Um, because that's the example that we have in the scriptures. It's consistent with the commands he's given us surrounding worship. Um, so we would see those things as distinct um, from the corporate gathering of God's people. Um, and that's really, you know, where you have to kind of, you, you have the overall distinction, and then you start to kind of whittle down what those distinctions look like practically. Um, and that kind of leads us into our, our next discussion here of what are those elements of corporate worship um, that at least at the very least, what we see as those core elements, right? We're not, we're not saying this is an exhaustive list. There may be more things that we could add. And again, the particular Baptists didn't see eye to eye, um, necessarily on what constituted corporate worship. Um, there were different, you know, laying on of hands was seen by, uh, some as worship, uh, some it was seen as not singing was a huge issue for the particular Baptist. Some thought that you should only have the minister sing. Some thought, you know, like Benjamin Keach, one of the signers of our confession, thought that corporate singing was required and necessary in the scriptures. So 
we're not going to see this consistency and it's hard to go to um, some historical monolithic line that you can draw and say, okay, they all believe this. Okay. We should follow this. We should all follow this. We can't do that. Um, it is, you know, you read, it is kind of depressing how all over the place there are, but um, we really, you know, we go back to the scriptures. We know that men are men, men, um, are not going to have all of their ducks in a row necessarily. These men were working under persecution too and having to work these things out kind of on the fly sometimes with a lot of pressure on them and in response to the established church around them. So they're having to work these things out uh, from the established church that a lot of them came from. Um, so it, you know, we have to be careful not to impose our standards of, um, of modern standards upon them and understand the context that they were in. But regardless, um, this is these are the core issues that we think um, make constitute corporate worship. Um, and again, there might be more that we could add, um, but we think these really will constitute that core aspect of worship as found in the scriptures. So number one, preaching. I think this one's going to be agreed upon by um, all Reformed people that preaching is a core element of corporate worship. Um, we can find this in First Timothy four eleven through sixteen. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Paul, you know, in context of First Timothy, he's giving these exhortations to Timothy on how to run little church that he has been charged with. Um, and here he's telling them exactly what he's supposed to do to the church. This is not private. This is not something that's um, done in a secret room somewhere. This is a corporate uh, command in terms of how it's to be applied. This is to the church corporately. He's to teach the people of God the word of God. There's to be the public reading of scripture. He's to exhort the people and he's to teach them. So he's publicly reading and he's expounding upon what's found in the scriptures. He's exhorting them. He's teaching them what's in the scriptures. So that's, a, I think, a very clear core aspect um, of worship. So he was to preach the word of God to the people of God and we see an example of uh, this uh, in Acts chapter 20 with Paul uh, teaching the people of God up in an, uh, I think it was an upper room. Uh, Acts chapter 20, um, verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, that's important. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, I might have butchered that, but Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were uh, not a little comforted. So we see an example. This is a corporate gathering of believers on the first day of the week. So they were meeting on the Lord's Day. And Paul, an apostle who is really a preamble as an elder, right, is 
teaching them. He's exhort giving them the word of God. Um, so we have a clear example from Scripture of Christians gathering corporately on a specific day, separate from other days. This is not private worship. This is a corporate gathering, and Paul is teaching them the word of God. Um, anything to add to that, Sean? Uh, not on preaching. I think uh, that's okay. fairly straightforward, and you won't get too much disagreement among the Reformed about that. No, no. And if you do, it you want to start asking questions quickly. <laughs> All right, uh, singing. Number two, singing. Uh, we are commanded very clearly to sing in Scripture corporately. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 are very clear on this, um, that we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, again, there's disagreement um, among good brethren on what this means, whether it's talking about exclusive psalmody or talking about um, you know psalms and hymns, songs distinct from psalms. Um, if you look at John Gill, for instance, you're going to find he he takes us to be talking about Psalms. He doesn't believe that uh, there's any real distinction among these things here. But you look at Benjamin Keach, he's going to um, probably go with actual hymns um, as distinct from Psalms that are included in this list. So again, you're going to find in today, you're going to find different views on what this means. And we did an episode on exclusive psalmody, so you can go back through the uh, the time machine and look uh, and listen to that. Um, but anyways, uh, we believe that singing is very clearly taught that corporately is to be done. There to, and it's also seen as an act of teaching, right? Paul says that we're to let, in Colossians 3, that we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And out of that flows this teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're teaching the word of God to one another through singing, and it's flowing from letting the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Um, so it's definitely a corporate act and something that we have to do as believers um, uh, in, in terms of, of worshiping God. Um, anything to add to that, Sean? Um, maybe just uh, um, a, an interesting insight that at one point was brought up to me. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, the exclusive psalmody brethren wouldn't necessarily ag agree with what I'm about to say here, but I, I do think it's interesting. <laughs> The discussion we had about um, the church being the new temple um, in the Old Testament, it was the Levites who were responsible for the music in the temple. And in, in certain cases, the writing of the, the Psalms, like you have Psalms of the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah had written that particular Psalm. So in the, the New Testament, the New Testament priests, which we are, were called a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood you would expect would be uh, as that parallel, you would uh, expect them to be writing songs um, to be sung by the people of God in worship. So uh, just a little interesting parallel there. That is an interesting point. Um, I haven't thought about that before. And that would be consistent with what we see like in Psalm 96, one where it talks about singing a new song. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, done in the context of, uh, the nations singing a new song. It's not something that's tied to Israel specifically. So it's definitely a new covenant. Uh, it, it's looking forward to the new covenant, looking forward to the nations coming in to the kingdom and being brought in and singing a new song as a result of that, you know, along with Revelation chapter five. Um, so, yeah, that that's very interesting that you can see that uh, probably see that typological connection there. Yep. Yep. All right. Number three, prayer. Again, something that I think all of our Reformed brethren would agree on in terms of a core aspect of worship. Um, 
This one is, I think, extremely obvious. Again, going back to 1 Timothy, we see in 1 Timothy 2.8, um, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, so I think this is a universal command, not just in the churches, but just a universal command that we are to pray as Christians. And prayer is a pious act of devotion to God, so it constitutes his worship. And this is something we can do privately and corporately, um, but again, more solemnly in the corporate settings. Um, and then again, prayer meetings. We talked about this a little bit earlier. What about prayer meetings? Um, this would not be part of corporate worship that we would find on the Lord's day. Um, although those are good to have and, and there's nothing wrong with those, they don't constitute corporate worship. Uh, the regulator principle would um, apply very differently here. Um, so I think that's very uh, important to point out. Um, number four, uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, this is a very, uh, I think among the particular Baptists, this was one of the biggest issues that they um, dealt with. And there were, again, there's controversy over this, you know, whether uh, open communion should be allowed um, versus a closed fence table. Um, there was, and there were even differences on when the Lord's table should be practiced. Um, you know, our church practices the Lord's table every week. Um, and I think that's a very biblically consistent um, position to have. And I think you can easily back that up um, with scripture. Um, but there are good brethren who believe that having it once a month is, is a good idea. And there is historical precedent for that. There were particular Baptists who did practice once a month. There were particular Baptists who practice at different intervals. Um, and so that you're, you're not going to find a monolithic historical precedent for that. But in terms of practicing the Lord's Supper, um, 1 Corinthians 11 is probably the clearest place that we see um, the New Testament church post-resurrection practicing the Lord's Supper and specific instructions for it. Um, so 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 20. Uh, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and that's important, as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So Paul is assuming that they're doing the Lord's Supper within the context of their corporate gatherings. And he's rebuking them because they're not doing it the way that's been prescribed, right? So he's rebuking them for not doing it a certain way, which assumes that there's a prescription for what they're supposed to be doing, right? So they're supposed to be taking of the Lord's Supper in a specific way, and he'll go on to lay out what they're doing wrong, right? Some are getting drunk, some are hogging all the, the elements of the table for themselves and not giving it to others, um, being gluttons. Um, there was it was like a wild rodeo um, at the at the Lord's table in the Corinthian church, and Paul was rebuking them um, for that. So it it is definitely an aspect of worship, and Paul assumes that they're doing this in the context of their Lord's Day gatherings. He said, "When you come together as a church, and that's when the church would meet was on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day." So it's certainly an aspect of uh, corporate worship. And I think that's where you can find biblical precedent for practicing this weekly, is that Paul is giving these commands and instructions in the context of when they're gathering together as a church, um, which would be weekly. Um, so I think there's definitely biblical precedent there from a regulative principle standpoint for practicing it weekly. 
Uh, anything I, to add, Sean? Yeah, definitely. Um, yep. This might have just been an issue for me. I've encountered people that also thought similar, similarly, but never took it to the extent that I was taking it. Um, it's it's clear to me that the early church here is actually doing a little bit more than we would in in um, modern evangelical circles, uh, modern Christian circles, uh, where it's more of a meal than just merely the Lord's Supper, if that makes sense. For example, picking up from where you uh, you left off there, Dan, in, in verse 20, um, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What have ye not houses to eat in, and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So it seems that uh, if they're able to eat so much that some are, are getting full and drunk, that this is a little bit more than just uh, you're eating your, your piece of bread and drinking your small uh, cup of wine. Um, so I had sort of come to the conclusion that, oh, maybe this is an essential aspect of the Lord's Supper, this, this corporate um, eating of a communal meal. Um, and I'd, I'd seen other people say that, yes, maybe we should be practicing this. But it, in my mind, trying to apply the regular principle, uh, I was concerned, well, sometimes we don't necessarily have, because our church does have a fellowship meal. It's distinct mm -hmm. from the, the uh, giving of the Lord's Supper. It, it takes place after. And uh, right now with our circumstances, we don't even have it every single week. But uh, it, it was a concern in my mind. Well, if this is an essential aspect of this, would it be sin to not participate in the corporate meal on the Lord's day? Um, I think ultimately this passage actually contradicts that, uh, that view that I was, I was coming to um, verse uh, 33, Paul says, wherefore my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home that ye come not together under condemnation and the rest will I set in order when I come. So Paul's actually saying, if this is an issue where um, there's going to be like, well, I'm, I'm really hungry, just eat at home. That's that's far more important than, you know, creating this this issue where you're, you're acting greedily and taking, which implies to me that actually this isn't essential, isn't an essential aspect of mm -hmm. uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, so you can have uh, have a fellowship meal. Obviously, that's perfectly acceptable. They were doing it, but that's not the essential aspect of it. Um, I don't know if that helps anybody, but uh, at least m my realization of that helped me to understand a little bit better what was essential to the Lord's Supper and what wasn't. So hopefully, maybe it will benefit somebody out there. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard of that before, but I can see how someone could come to that conclusion because Paul is giving these commands that seem to imply that. But yeah, when he says eat at home, it's like, well, okay, clearly he doesn't see this as you're supposed to be doing this. You're act the fact that you guys are pigging out on the Lord's Supper is the problem. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing you're not eating this in an act of mm -hmm. worship. And just in the very previous chapter in chapter 10, Paul got done uh, rebuking those who were eating at pagan feasts and saying that you can't partake with demons because these are religious suppers. The Lord's Supper mm -hmm. is a religious supper eating um, meat offered to idols in the context of a supper or a you know a feast offered to idols is a religious act you can't separate it in that way so don't do it um so if they're abusing the lord's supper here in first corinthians 11 
then they're abusing um, a religious service. In this case, it's religious worship to God um, mm -hmm. by just, you know, using it to fulfill their their hungry stomachs. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very we kind of laugh at the Corinthian church because of how we to this, this just seems so silly. Um, and I guess to Paul, it did, too. You know, he's saying, what are you doing? I, I'm not commending you for this. He just got done commending them for the the head covering issue. And then he says, wait a second, I can't commend you here. You guys are just off the rails on this. Um, so, yeah. And and people were literally dying. He says, some of you have fallen asleep because of your foolishness. And God is a consuming fire. And these uh, these uh, sanctions that come down from violating God's commands as it relates to worship are serious and they can have practical implications for Christians. Um, so it, it's important that we continue to follow God's word as he is prescribed with worship. Um, all right. And finally, um, baptism. Um, this was definitely clearly seen. Uh, it's definitely an act of worship to God. First uh, Peter 3.21 talks about baptism being a, um, a, I'm trying to remember the terminology, I don't have it written down, a declaration of a, a clear conscience before God. Um, so you are giving pious worship to God in the sense you're publicly declaring that you are uniting yourself to Christ. You're identifying with his death and his resurrection, uh, Romans chapter 6, right? We're being buried with Christ. We're being risen with him in baptism. Obviously, you know, Peter says that baptism, the washing of the water doesn't do anything. There's no real spiritual um, merit being done in the washing itself. It's the uh, the spiritual aspect of the act that uh, matters here, not the washing itself. Um, but this was to be regulated by the word of God. It is an act of worship. And the this is really a sticking point with the particular Baptists who were pushing against infant baptism because of the fact that there is no example nor is there command in Scripture for infant baptism, right? Um, Benjamin Cox, who was an early particular Baptist, and the, fire, uh, the father of Nehemiah Cox, who would probably be one of the editors of the Second London Baptist Confession, which we subscribe to, um, he thought that infant baptism was will worship because there was no command or example. Um, so this was, I think, a very strong argument and still is a very strong argument against infant baptism, because of the regulative principle. Um, and this is, you know, you look at the Presbyterians who were all about their, you know, their pious worship and their solemn ceremonies, yet they were introducing things and still do introduce things into uh, worship through baptism that uh, we don't find in scripture. Um, and so this is certainly well worship. Um, but is it part of corporate worship? Um, I would say yes and no. I think it can uh, I think primarily it does, but I think there are exceptions to the rule. Um, we see in Acts chapter, um, well, first of all, I'll say from a particular Baptist perspective, um, Hansard Nollies, who was one of the signers of our confession, um, talks about what he thought constitutes corporate worship. Um, and Jim Renahan talks about this uh, with regards to Nollies. He says, baptism requires large amounts of water and thus cannot be part of the regular worship service of the churches. It is to be performed by appointed administrators who dip the new believer into the water, drawing them, drawing each one back out again. Though it could not be done as part of the regular weekly worship of the church, it was nonetheless to be considered an act of worship and thus was regulated by scripture. That's from page 127 of Education 
edification beauty by Jim Renahan. Um, so, you know, they didn't have baptismals necessarily in their churches. And so it didn't make sense for them to do this within corporate worship. And, you know, I think there's, there's precedent for that. Acts chapter 8 with the example with Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, this was not in the context of corporate worship. Uh, Philip was in the chariot with the eunuch, and he explained the scriptures. I think the eunuch was reading Isaiah. Uh, and He explained the scriptures, explained about Jesus. He believed, and then they saw water, and the eunuch was like, hey, why can't I be baptized? And Philip baptized him, and then he was taken away. I think the Spirit took him away. And so um, I think there's definitely biblical precedent here for baptism being done outside of corporate worship. But I do think that primarily it should be done in corporate worship. And there's, I think, a definite principle for that, um, especially since we uh, see with the keys of the kingdom being given to the church. The church has the ability to bind and loose. Right. And that idea has the, uh, the idea of declaration. The church can declare somebody saved as it relates to um as it relates to, you know, the evidence that they have and saying you're saved and saying, no, you're not based on the evidence that they have. Um, that's not making them saved or unsaved. It's just a declaration based on the um, evidence that they have. And this is what binding and loosening has to do. So when you're talking about um, church discipline, they're, you know, pushing that uh, that sanction upon that person and treating them as an unbeliever. Right. Until they repent of their sin and come back within the, the corporate body. Um, so when we're talking about this, baptism is a public declaration, and it's performed by the minister or the elders or those who are appointed to do so. And this is really the church corporately through public declaration, accepting this person into the body and seeing their, um, their profession of faith as being genuine and agreeing with it. And the church as a whole declaring, this person declaring, through the one who's appointed, um, that this is um, a believer. And so they're exercising the keys of the kingdom um, in this respect. Um, and then we see Matthew 28 as well. Um, Jesus says that they're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this concept of making disciples um, is within the concept of the church. This is preaching and teaching. It's not just the initial act of salvation. This is a lifelong effort of continuously making disciples through teaching um, the people of God and exercising the means of grace that he has given um, to his church. Um, a really good article on this that I think is helpful. Um, Baptism is a church's act by Bami Jamison, who's an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in, in D.C. over by where we are. Um, so if you want to do some more further study on that, that um, I think is a good place to go. Um, any comments on that, Sean? Uh, no, I think I'm good to uh, go into the last uh, section if you are. Yep, you're right ahead. All right, so I just wanted to uh, go through some things that uh, don't constitute corporate worship, even if they're maybe um, done on the Lord's Day, which might be confusing for some, uh, just to, to put some clarification uh, there. Uh, for example, um, in our church, uh, uh, when we were meeting at our church building, there was a playground outside and frequently you'd have families with kids go outside and, and gather and um, uh, talk and fellowship. Uh, would something like that be an element of uh, corporate worship? Well, it's on the Lord's Day and it is the members of the church 
Um, so I could see why somebody might think that, oh, this is corporate worship, but it's not something that's been commanded um, by God. It's, um, it's not an element of worship that we've seen. Uh, so we would say that actually, it's, even though it's on the Lord's Day and even most members of the church, it's not um, an element of corporate worship. Um, and if a, the church were to command, no, everybody must go outside right now and uh, fellowship uh, on the playground, that would be that would be weird. And people would un intuitively understand that there's an issue there. So um, just because something is done by believers, maybe even at the same uh, physical location, doesn't necessarily make it corporate worship. Um, and, uh, we want to be careful about um introducing that um into our thinking um because that could lead to uh, issues on the flip side of it you might have um someone uh trying to say that well we have during the main we're going to have a rock concert during our main service right and um oh well that's not really corporate worship because it's not defined as corporate worship like that's that's true it's not defined as corporate worship by the bible but the fact that you're putting it in that context really means that you are you're you're making it an element of corporate worship so you have that that opposite error that seems uh very prevalent in uh, modern american christianity that um whether they mean to or not people are adding something into worship corporate worship and that's uh it's very problematic um there's a there's a line there maybe we don't always know exactly where the line is maybe it takes some thought and some prayer to understand okay what is corporate worship and what isn't what's appropriate for me to do now and what's not uh but there is a line and uh, we want to at least be aware that there's a line so that we don't make mistakes of thinking things are corporate worship when they're not and thinking that things are not when we're, we're making them to be yeah no that's that's very important um and you're right it's not always easy to find where that distinction is um, and it's going to look different in different places as we're all growing. And as we're being led by the spirit and the word of God, um, there's going to be there as we see, and we've already noted differences historically and even now, um, about what that looks like. Um, and then you get into issues like, uh, if this, we have, uh, what is it? Paragraph one, a uh, chapter one, paragraph six of our confession talks about, circumstances where mm -hmm. uh, there's according to the natural order of things and certain cultures that you live in that in relation to the worship of God that you can do that are consistent with the word of God, but aren't necessarily explicitly commanded in scripture. Um, and, you know, you can see that I think very clearly in certain things where um, what you're doing in fulfillment of a command of God to worship may not be given in scripture. Like you're, um, you know, some kind of modern usage for a particular thing, but it fulfills the command um, that Paul might not have had in mind when he was writing, um, but it fulfills the command of scripture in terms of worship. We could say that that is very much allowed. Um, it, every little thing does not have to be laid out in scripture um, because even if you're, what you're doing is not commanded in scripture, you are still fulfilling a command in scripture. And that's the point. Um, and that's very different than the normative principle, which just says, well, there's no command whatsoever, uh, even for governing what I'm going to do. Um, and so I'm just going to do it anyways. I have no precedent in scripture for it, but you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to put it into my worship. That's really the issue. Um, so 
you know, what color Pastor Steve's, our, that's our pastor, Pastor Steve's uh, tie should be or the color of our pews or whether we meet in a school or whether we meet in a church building. Um, actually, in terms of the place of worship, we, you know, John chapter four is very clear about that. But in cons what we would call inconsequential things that don't, um, you know, that are not necessarily related to the act of pious worship itself, um, we, we can be very flexible on again color pews what's you know what do you have on your stage um you know you you kind of have to use your judgment in those areas consistent with the word of god as a whole and letting those principles guide you still but they don't necessarily have to be um laid out in scripture specifically so there is a, a slight distinction there but all still falling under the regulative principle of worship um, that doesn't go away so uh, we hope this has been, you know, this has been helpful. We're not, you know, saying that, you know, we're coming down dogmatically on all the implications of the regulative principle here. Um, but we're giving you what we believe historically this is and what we believe this is uh, found in Scripture. And we hope this has been helpful. Um, I do see some comments here, Sean. I wanna... Yeah, I think Desiree asked you a question. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, are you meaning prayer meeting? excuse me, prayer meeting on days other than Sunday or also those held on the Lord's Day like we used to do in the afternoon. Um, so it could be, um, I guess to clarify that more, yeah, it could be any prayer meeting outside of corporate worship. So even if we did an afternoon prayer meeting like we used to do at our church, uh, we had afternoon prayer meeting after the worship service, I would say that would be distinct um, and is not part of corporate worship as it relates to that special worship that we have that has those core elements um, found there. Yeah, to expand on that just a, a little bit, uh, in the more main service, we do have corporate prayer um, led by um, various people leading the service, whether it's mm -hmm. um, the person um, uh, leading uh, worship or, the, uh, or Pastor Steve will have corporate prayer there. Um, and then uh, frequently when we were meeting in our own building, we would uh, have a prayer meeting after the fellowship meal. Um, and at that point, people might leave prior to prayer meeting or whatever. And I would not necessarily want to call that an essential aspect of worship, because if it's an essential aspect of worship, all of a sudden people are leaving and that would be you're, you're not involving yourself in worship. But that wasn't necessarily the point of it. Um, you can have a prayer meeting um, that's not um, that's not uh, necessarily corporate worship. Um, and we see this um, in Acts uh, when the, the church is praying for Peter's release. I don't think that was necessarily on a Sunday, but uh, they were gathered together for the purpose of prayer. So just because you have a prayer meeting, it doesn't automatically make it a uh, a. Um, a uh, an element of corporate worship. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There, there is a distinction there that that we would see um, that I think we have to maintain because really these elements of, of corporate worship are taken as a whole. They're not distinguished. It's not like we just have preaching and then we just skip the Lord's Supper or we just have the Lord's Supper and we don't have preaching and prayer. Um, mm -hmm. They're seen as a package deal. So if we're doing these things together, that constitutes corporate worship. And then anything outside of that does not constitute corporate worship. It's a corporate gathering, but um, based on the elements that we find in scripture of what worship looks like, um, it's 
I wouldn't say that a prayer meeting outside of the regular worship service is going to constitute a corporate mm -hmm. worship as found, you know, regulated that in that special solemn sense. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm willing if somebody wants to bring up a biblical argument why we, you would see that as corporate worship. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept that, but I haven't seen that from the scriptures necessarily that that yeah, I don't, I don't see that either. corporate worship. Nope. Um, oh, and our, our good friends at uh, the provisionist perspective, I'm about to go into corporate worship in about an hour. So Lord's Day here down. Is that, I can't read New Zealand, that. down under in oh, New, New Zealand. Zealand. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you're like a day ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that one or both of you were in New Zealand. That's interesting. Maybe traveling. Yeah. Oh, haven't heard from you guys in a while. <laughs> you guys are doing well. All right. Um, well, with that, everyone, we'll sign off here. Thank you for joining us today. Hope this has been a helpful conversation. Um, and again, this is not an issue that reform the reformed have closed on every implication. So, you know, feel free. We appreciate feedback, appreciate uh, comments, any questions that you have. We'd be happy to take a look at them and try and answer them. But with that, everyone, have a great Lord's Day tomorrow um, as we go into corporate worship. And Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Take care.